It's 1994, and just outside Las Vegas, Nevada, Gibson CEO Henry Juskowitz is taking a group of his sales reps on a field trip to an outdoor shooting range. They're firing off an assortment of guns, including Glocks and AK-47s, blasting paper targets full of holes. You're a good shot, Henry. Thanks, but, but wait, check this out. I've saved the best for last. Staffers walk out onto the range and put up new targets. The men laugh and cheer when they see that one of the new targets is a Fender Stratocaster. Juskowitz picks up a high-powered rifle with a sniper scope and takes aim. What do you say, fellas? Ready to blow away the competition? Light it up, Henry! Juskowitz fires three large holes in the Stratocaster's body, then steps aside to let his employees take their turns. Within minutes, the Strat is blown to smithereens. Juskowitz slaps the sales reps on the back. Good shooting, boys. Now I want you all to picture this next time you're closing a sale. Let's show Fender who's boss. Juskowitz has good reason to be feeling cocky. Just a few months earlier, the New York Times ran a story about him with the headline, Saving Gibson Guitars from the Musical Scrap Heap. The article noted that in 1993, Gibson's total sales reached $70 million, up from just $10 million in 1986, the year Juskowitz and his partners purchased the company. But Juskowitz doesn't want to just save Gibson. He wants to reinvent it. He believes that Gibson can become what he calls a music lifestyle company. He's already started buying up other businesses and brands, a drum manufacturer, a synthesizer maker, an amplifier company, and a line of high-end bass guitars. Ultimately, he envisions getting into apparel, consumer electronics, home audio and entertainment systems, even concert promotion. As they leave the gun range, Juskowitz hands out pieces of the bullet-riddled Strat to his sales reps. His message is clear. In the battle for dominance of the guitar market, he intends to leave Fender in the dust. It's game on. If you travel for work, you know to pack two suits, business and swim. You know with your Delta Sky Miles Business Amex card, buying that plane ticket for a business trip can get you closer to medallion status. You know that a meeting in Montana means visiting almost every national park. Yellowstone? Check. Because you're the chief excursion officer. It's why you're a Delta Sky Miles Platinum Business American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Visit go.amex slash you know business. Now, since you're a podcast listener, I'm sure you know all about how audio just does something to the imagination. So I'm really excited to tell you about how Audible's brand new exclusive thrillers are brought to life with that kind of captivating sound design, the eerie soundscapes and dynamic performances. There's one that caught my eye. I should say it caught my ear. It's an Audible original called Sleeping Dogs Lie by Samantha Downey. It details the aftermath of a local businessman's murder in Marin County, California, a once sleepy suburb now part of the bustling Silicon Valley area. And as an Audible member, well, you get to keep one title a month from their entire catalog, including bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible now, free, for 30 days. Head on over to audible.com BW or text BW to 500-500. That's audible.com BW or text BW to 500-500 and try out Audible free 
for 30 days. From Wondery, I'm David Brown, and this is Business Wars. On our last episode, new owners pulled both Fender and Gibson back from the brink of collapse, rekindling their rivalry in the process. In our final episode, as these two iconic companies struggle to protect their legacy brands, they will break with tradition in startling ways. This is Episode 6, Attack of the Robot Guitars. Southern California, March 20th, 1991. Leo Fender is at the headquarters of his G&L Guitar Company having lunch with his longtime business partner, George Fullerton. Fender and Fullerton sit outside on the patio, eating sandwiches and enjoying the sunshine. Fender is 81, and his advanced Parkinson's makes his speech difficult to understand. But Fullerton catches nearly every word. They've worked side by side for over 40 years, and their bond is almost telepathic. Fender mumbles something, and Fullerton replies, Yep, Leo. Got those new coils you wanted. After lunch, we'll put together the pickups and get her ready for assembly. Fender's asking about his latest invention, a six-string baritone bass guitar. He wants something that combines the thick bottom end of a bass with a twang of the very first guitar he and Fullerton built together, the Telecaster. The Parkinson's and a series of small strokes may have slowed Fender down, but he's not about to retire. He's not ready to give up tinkering with guitars and amplifiers, still searching for that perfect sound. After lunch, Fender goes back to his workshop where, with Fullerton's help, he assembles the final components for the baritone bass guitar. Tomorrow, they'll string the guitar and test it out. After work, Fullerton gives Fender a ride to his hillside home just a few miles away. He helps his old partner out of the car and up the steps to his front door, where Fender's second wife, Phyllis, greets them. Hello, Leo. How was your day? Did you manage to stay out of trouble? Thanks for giving him a ride, George. Anytime, Phyllis. All right, Leo. We'll see you tomorrow, and we'll check out the sound of that new guitar. Fender waves to his old partner and leans on Phyllis's shoulder as they go inside. The next morning, Phyllis is making breakfast. Usually, she can hear her husband fumbling around in his office. But this morning, silence. She finds Fender on the floor, unconscious. Frantically, she calls 911. It's my husband. I I think he's had a stroke. The paramedics arrive in just minutes. But it's no use. Later that day at a nearby medical center, Leo Fender is pronounced dead. Fender was proud of his inventions, but rarely sought public recognition for them. After his death, the accolades start coming. He's posthumously inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Guitar Player Magazine names an Innovation Award after him. Keith Richards and U2 guitarist The Edge sing his praises in interviews. In 
But not everyone is on board with canonizing the great Leo Fender. At the Fender Musical Instruments Corporation, President Bill Schultz responds to the death of his company's founder by suing G&L Guitars. Schultz summons his legal team. They're hardball kind of guys themselves. But even they are surprised by this move. Schultz explains his reasoning. The Fender name is our trademark. Putting Leo Fender's signature on their guitars is a clear violation. It's intended to confuse customers. But Bill, how will it look? I mean, suing Leo Fender's company right after his death. Look, while he was still alive, I let it slide out of respect. But rumor has it that several large companies are looking to buy GNL, and if they ramp up GNL's production, and their guitars still say Leo Fender on them? All right, I see your point. We'll get right on it. Schultz's decision may be unpopular with some guitar fans, but it proves savvy. In early 1992, a larger company does buy GNL guitars, and the new owners agree to take Leo Fender's signature off their headstocks. Meanwhile, Fender's remarkable comeback under Schultz's leadership continues. Fender's sales grow from 21 million guitars in 1985 to 90 million in 1991, far outpacing their biggest rival, Gibson. Fueling Fender's growth is a new concept in guitar making, the custom shop. For decades, famous guitar players could order one-of-a-kind guitars from Fender made to their exact specifications. Now, anyone from the general public can do it too, if they have enough money to spend. A custom Fender can set you back $10,000 or more. But even with that price tag, demand is high. By 1994, a team of 10 master builders and their support staff churn out nearly a thousand one-off and limited edition guitars each year and some of the client's designs are interesting. One afternoon in 1994, a master builder comes into the office of custom shop head John Page carrying a battered old Telecaster and lays it down on Page's workbench. What do you think of this, John? I think you've got your work cut out for you. That's what I think. This thing is beat to hell. What year is it? 52, 53? Dude, it's brand new. We spent the past month distressing it. The client said shiny new Telecasters look too dorky, like a brand new pair of sneakers. So we just beat it up a bit. <laughs> what do you think? Pretty cool, right? Yeah, I, I, I get it. Once people get a load of this, I bet everyone's going to want one. We should call it our relic line. On the other end of the design spectrum is the artist signature series. Guitars designed to look and sound exactly like the custom instruments played by the world's most famous guitarists. An Eric Clapton Stratocaster is the first guitar in the series, followed by signature strats based on guitars used by Jeff Beck, Jimi Hendrix, Stevie Ray Vaughan, and Bonnie Raitt. With all of Fender's creations, Gibson is left playing catch-up. In the late 90s, they make Les Paul signature models based on the guitars of Jimmy Page, Slash, even Bob Marley. Fender and Gibson are leapfrogging each other, growing at breakneck speed. In 1999, Fender reports sales of $200 million a year. A year later, Gibson reports sales of $250 million. Not just from their guitars, 
but from their increasingly diversified lines of other products, including amplifiers, synthesizers, drums, and pro audio equipment. But for Henry Juskowitz, it's not enough. He wants to obliterate Fender, and he's sure Gibson's next product will do just that. April 2004. At Gibson's Nashville headquarters, the staff all dress like they're at a punk rock club. A receptionist in fishnets and black boots leads an Associated Press reporter into Juskowitz's office. It's lined with guitars and framed photos of Sting, Madonna, and B.B. King. Juskowitz is in his 50s now, graying at the temples, but in his frayed jean jacket and black shirt, he dresses more like a musician than a CEO. He greets the reporter with some polite banter and then takes a guitar down from the wall and hands it to him. This is the guitar of the future, fully digital with a built-in microprocessor and an Ethernet port. Here, let me show you. Jeskowitz plugs the Ethernet cable into his computer and plays a few chords. The reporter looks puzzled. Sounds just like a regular guitar to me. Right. We're not losing that classic sound and feel. The difference is in the technology we've built into this baby. The digital processor removes all distortion and each string has its own separate output. See? It's like having a mini recording studio. The reporter still looks unimpressed, but continues to jot down notes. Mini recording studio. Got it. So, uh, let me get this right. It's kind of like a, a synth guitar. Juskowitz is getting frustrated. No, it's... Look, this is unlike anything that's ever been made before. It's almost like we've completely reinvented the guitar. Just like Les Paul did for us back in the day. Okay, just like... Les Paul, right. Gibson's digital guitar is not a hit with critics or consumers. But it hardly matters. By 2009, thanks to a slew of new acquisitions, Gibson's annual revenues top $1 billion. Juskowitz has finally fulfilled his ambition to make Gibson the largest musical instrument company in the world. New York City, June 2009. At Iridium, a swank jazz club in Midtown Manhattan, guitarist Les Paul and his band finish up the first of two sets. Paul has just turned 94, and his fingers don't move quite as fast as they used to. But he can still peel off a few licks on the guitar that bears his name. As the crowd applauds, Paul leans into the microphone. Thank you, thank you. We're going to take a short break so they can restart my pacemaker. <laughs> we'll be back before you know it. Backstage, Paul's bass player and drummer help him lay down on a couch and put his feet up. Something doesn't feel right. The drummer can't hide his concern. Maybe we should get you to a hospital, Les. I'll be fine, I'll be fine. I just need to catch my breath. Paul soldiers through a second set. But there's no denying he's not feeling well. Turns out he has walking pneumonia, and he cancels his next show at Iridium. And then, the next show, 
As his condition gets worse, he's hospitalized and put on a respirator. On August 12, 2009, Les Paul dies. He once told an interviewer, I'll probably play until I fall over. And he very nearly made good on that prediction. At Gibson, Henry Jeskowitz signs off on a press release confirming Paul's death and orders his R&D department to get to work on a commemorative version of the Les Paul guitar. But he's got bigger concerns. America is in the midst of a recession, and though Gibson's overall sales are up, electric guitar sales, still the core of its business, are down nearly 20%. If he wants Gibson to remain the world's biggest guitar maker, he needs to come up with a way to boost sales, and fast. Fender is struggling under the recession, too, and dealing with the loss of its own iconic figure. In 2006, Fender President Bill Schultz died of cancer. His successors have worked hard to carry on his vision. But it's been tough. They've been trading on the nostalgia market for classic Fender designs. And guitar sales are sliding. Nostalgia alone won't be enough to keep Fender going, especially with its rival Gibson, pushing the guitar market into the future. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, it isn't just your business. It's your life. Whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's where State Farm Small Business Insurance comes in. See, State Farm agents are small business owners, too. They know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. New York City, October 28, 2010. Gibson CEO Henry Jeskowitz is holding a press conference at the same Hard Rock Cafe where 23 years earlier he threw a birthday party for Les Paul. In a black shirt and jean jacket, Juskowitz enters the room carrying a Gibson SG, one of Gibson's most iconic guitars made famous by players like ACDC's Angus Young. Juskowitz steps up to a microphone and holds the guitar up by its neck. This is the past. The crowd gasps as he turns and smashes the SG violently against a cinder block placed there to ensure maximum damage. Juskowitz tosses the splintered guitar onto the floor and then pulls out another guitar with an angular body and red sunburst finish. He holds it aloft. This is the future. This is revolution. Meet the Firebird 10 the world's most technologically advanced guitar. As cameras flash and reporters scribble notes, Juskowitz lists the Firebird 10's dizzying array of features. Bluetooth, built-in audio effects software, 
55 preset tones, rechargeable batteries, even a feature called Robot that automatically tunes the guitar. Guitars haven't changed in over 60 years, not since the days of Les Paul and Leo Fender. Now Gibson has reimagined the guitar for the next 60 years. I'd be happy to take any questions. Will any of these features be available on other Gibson guitars? Our hope is to eventually make the robot auto-tuning system standard on all Gibsons, but for now, don't worry, we'll keep making guitars for Luddites. When he was young and bringing Gibson back from the brink of extinction, people enjoyed Juskowitz's rock and roll antics. But now, stunts like smashing one of his company's own guitars and calling Gibson's longtime customers Luddites seem tone deaf. The Firebird 10 is a flop, but that doesn't stop Juskowitz from continuing to push some of the technology built into it. He has no choice. He's overspent, expanding Gibson into audio gear and consumer electronics and sinking tens of millions of dollars into innovations like the automatic tuning system. His quest to make Gibson a lifestyle brand has left the company saddled with debt. But instead of admitting his mistakes, at a 2014 meeting with his lead guitar designers, he doubles down. Starting next year, we're making automatic tuning standard on all Gibsons. Are you sure, Henry? I mean, consumer response to the robot tuners hasn't been great. Our initial rollout was flawed. Calling them robot guitars was a bad idea. We're now calling it the G-Force automatic tuning system. Once people actually try it, they'll love it. But... They don't. The backlash against the G-Force system is even louder than the attacks leveled at the Firebird 10. And Gibson's sales continue to slide. Finally, in May of 2018, Gibson files for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. In the filing, the company reveals that it's over $500 million in debt. In September, Juskowitz steps down as CEO. Under Juskowitz, Gibson tried to bring innovation to the guitar market and failed, and their bankruptcy has hurt the entire industry. A series of articles comes out proclaiming the death of the electric guitar. But at Fender, new leadership is introducing some more low-key innovations and quietly proving that rumors of the guitar's death are greatly exaggerated. In 2015, Fender appoints a new CEO, a Scottish consumer products whiz named Andy Mooney. Mooney has no background in musical instruments. He got his start at Nike and Disney. But his outsider status gives him some advantages. Mooney asks the kind of questions no one at Fender has thought to ask for years. Who's our customer? What's the data about who buys Fender guitars? Fender's marketing heads aren't quite sure how to answer that. Well, uh, most of our sales are through dealers. We don't get much consumer data from them. But how do we know who we're selling to? The marketing executives are flummoxed. Mooney knows what he has to do. He orders several consumer research studies, and the results surprise Fender's old guard. It turns out that nearly 50% of all new guitar buyers are women. And for years... The industry as a whole has done almost nothing to market to them. 
What's worse, 90% of first-time guitar buyers quit playing after less than 12 months. Not only is Fender out of touch with half their consumer base, they're doing next to nothing to hold on to their new clientele. So, instead of trying to reinvent the guitar like Gibson, Fender begins reinventing the way guitars are marketed and sold. They offer online video tutorials to new players and start showcasing more female musicians in their marketing materials. And it works. By 2018, Fender reports annual earnings of $500 million, the best the company's done since before the 2008 recession. Gibson's board of directors is clearly watching Mooney's success at Fender. In November of 2018, they announced their own new outsider CEO, J.C. Curley, the former president of Levi's. He pledges to win back the trust of musicians who lost faith in Gibson during the robot guitar years. Musicians like Jimmy Page, Slash, and ZZ Top's Billy Gibbons. Gibson's latest incarnation will face its share of challenges, but there's reason to be optimistic. Guitar sales have been rising again for each of the past five years, and Gibson is restructuring at a good time. At this point in their histories, Gibson and Fender are not so much rivals as complementary forces. Many famous guitarists play both, including Keith Richards, Mark Knopfler, and The Edge. It all depends on what sound they need for a particular song, the clean, chiming tones of a Strat or the thick, crunchy tones of a Les Paul. And as Fender and Gibson enter this latest phase of their histories, it seems likely that both those options will be available to guitar players for generations to come. Hey, Prime members, you can binge every episode of Business Wars ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus and Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. From Wondery, this is Business Wars. We hope you enjoyed this episode. A quick note about the conversations you've been hearing in this episode. We can't know exactly what was said, but this dialogue is based on our best research. I'm your host, David Brown. Andy Herman wrote this story. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Emily Frost and Donna Hyams edited this story. Our editor and producer is Jenny Lauer Beckman. Sound designed by Bay Area Sound. Our executive producer is Marshall Louie. Created by Hernan Lopez for Wondering. Hey, it's Guy Raz here, the host of How I Built This, a podcast that gives you a front row seat to how some of the biggest products were built and the innovators, entrepreneurs, and idealists behind them. Every week, I speak to someone new, stories like Justin Wolverton's, a lawyer who just wanted a healthy alternative to ice cream, so he created Halo Top in his Cuisinart. Or Todd Graves, who grew his fried chicken restaurant Raising Cane's into one of the most successful fast food chains in the U.S. All of these great conversations can help you learn how to think big, take risks, and navigate crises in life and work from people who've done all of that and more. 
Follow How I Built This on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus.